Welcome to RAQA Today, the podcast that puts the fun back in quality, compliance, and regulatory affairs. Here's your host, Michelle Lott. So one of the most important things you need to know about the pre-submission process is the FDA never forgets. You're going to have this conversation if whatever feedback they give you takes you three or four years to work out and get all the subsequent data and you change your product design and blah, 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 they are going to remember you did a pre-sub all those years ago and they're going to bring it up if you don't. So I have seen it a lot of times where clients don't tell me at all or that they did a pre-submission and I either find it in a data dump or the FDA says, hey, what have you changed since that four years ago? And then also don't try to submit old data. That also doesn't mean you're bound to that submission. You just have to be aware they're going to ask you questions about it and what changed. So if you take a look at this, this is the amount of pre-sub meetings that are received per year compared to the number of meetings that are held. And you can see right around 50% are, are having meetings as opposed to other types of feedback. So of course, this has been a steady growth in popularity. It's largely because they're free and people are doing more and new novel things. And then with COVID, this went through the roof in terms of people doing pre-subs in EUAs. This is one of the, the U.S. is so unique to other government agencies because it is free to communicate with the FDA and get their status and their thinking on your product. So don't pass up this opportunity. A pre-sub is a type of Q submission. So when you, you put it in, they're going to assign you a, a number that starts with a Q. They're, they invite the FDA to be collaborative and avoid competitive or contentious 510K reviews about things that you may get surprised with in their thinking. You get to discuss specific, not open-ended questions with the FDA. And it's like inviting them to collaborate and be part of your problem-solving team in terms of regulatory testing and clinical strategy. One of the reasons why I really encourage pre-subs is because it's an opportunity to get FDA's current thinking on your device's overall safety and efficacy. And there may be things that they have coming in the works in terms of regulations or guidance documents that you don't have visibility to and you wouldn't plan for, but that you can get like a snapshot to some of the FDA's answers to your questions. And then most importantly, this is going to improve the likelihood of a successful 510K submission. This is especially if you've got anything that's going to be first of its kind uh, indication to an existing device. Remember that pre-subs are technically non-binding, but they create a history and a paper trail with the FDA. And FDA does usually honor its decisions unless something has changed from a regulatory perspective since they gave you their initial opinion. So you really need to describe your position in order to inform FDA's review. And a pre-sub is like, you have to think of it, it's like you're, you're telling a story, a non-fictional story about your product 
But the end goal is you're trying to get the reader, you're trying to lead them to a place and a conclusion. You ask three to four substantial topics in a single pre-sub and try to ask a complex question in multiple subparts to break it down into more understandable or digestible answers. Straightforward questions can be appropriate if they are addressed without an in-depth review and do not introduce new and significant topics. And don't throw in the kitchen sink with your submission, uh, but, but make sure you have sufficient background, especially anything with rationale or justifications, why you chose certain things, why you're asking certain things. You've got your, your standard contents. The most important thing is to remember, you are the expert in your own product. The FDA is not. So you need to include meaningful content, but that is clear and concise. And that, that also respects their time to review the, the material. Again, you do not want to uh, go in asking the FDA what they think. You need to be telling them about your product and what you think about it. Common topics include performance testing, regulatory strategy, clinical designation, regulatory pathway. It's a good way to get a gauge of FDA's familiarization with your particular technologies and um, anything novel that you're introducing, what they perceive in terms of safety and efficacy. There is an art to writing your questions. You need to focus your efforts on issues that are most relevant to moving your project forward. Again, don't throw the kitchen sink in with the questions. Clear and objective. It's really important as founders and as academians, you can be in love with your own science. Like we talked about earlier, FDA is not going to buy the transit of property and is buying even less longstanding uh, technology and materials. You need to con include sufficient background information, supporting documents, but avoid ex extraneous information. And then you need to be, we talk about, you're telling a story here and it needs to be guiding the FDA to a desired outcome. The best way to, to structure a question, and we're going to go through some specific examples, but is to ask that, pose the FDA a question that contains like almost a statement. And then the question is, does FDA concur? So you've told the FDA what you think in a kind of closed-ended fashion, and they can concur and say, yes, but, or they can say, no, and you need to be thinking this. So the power of phrasing, don't request a formal regulatory determination. Don't say things like, is my device a class two medical device per this regulation? Unless you have novel features or, or predicate specific questions, then you can phrase something like, does FDA agree that the predicate device and reference device in described in section X might be appropriate for the demonstration of substantial equivalence given whatever feature you think might be a challenge? Do request a clarification on the path to market if it's not straightforward. Does the agency agree that the proposed device as described exceeds the 510K exemption of this product code? 
If yes, does the agency agree that the predicate selection is appropriate? So some more examples do include protocols and ask questions on strategy. So does FDA agree that the non-clinical test strategy is sufficient to determine performance evaluation for the proposed device? But don't request review of data. So don't have already run a protocol and then turn the data in for review and ask FDA, does FDA agree that my data is sufficient for submission? Do ask FDA questions on the suitability of your study design. Does FDA agree that the statistical sample size calculation method of the statistical analysis plan is appropriate for the proposed clinical study? Don't ask the FDA to design your study or indicate how you should proceed. For example, do not ask how many subjects should my clinical study have? They'll be like, it's your device. You, you tell us and then we'll tell you if we agree. So there are multiple forms of feedback to ask from the FDA. You've got written feedback only, you've got teleconference, and you have an in-person meeting. Now, obviously with COVID, nobody's having in-person meetings anymore. Now, I personally prefer written feedback only because in my experience, the quantity and detail of a response you get in written feedback only will go into pages and pages and it will answer questions you didn't even ask. They'll answer your questions in a couple of pages and then they'll say, and FDA is also thinking this or would like to see that. It can be extremely helpful and informative. Right now, your other option is via a teleconference. Now you are going to get some written feedback in advance of a teleconference, but it's not gonna be in the extent and level of detail that you're gonna get with written feedback only. And then there's a whole issue and dynamic of managing the, the conference that you have to be cognizant of. You need to also be aware that COVID has impacted pre-submission. So instead of 60 to 75 days, you know, the FDA is giving form rejection letters and say, thanks, but no thanks. We are kind of busy right now. We have a little bit of a backlog. And if you want us to look at this, resubmit it, and it will be 120 to 180 days before we get to it. It's not across the board, but that, that is happening more often than not. Some lessons learned is that you're going to want to take the RTA checklist which is at the back of the pre-submission guidance. And you're gonna to wanna to fill it out that you have appropriately formatted and followed all of the, the recommendations to get through the refuse to accept. And then ideally you would also take a PDF editor and possibly add page numbers along the side where these questions are fulfilled or discussed. Make sure that your form that you download for your cover sheet is not expired. They do change these periodically. So check that. And then make sure that you're checking the right type of Q submission uh, in the pre-submission because there are a number of Q submissions. So FDA e-copy, this is super fun and a super pain in the butt. So there is a whole set of guidance documents around how to prepare your e-copy. There are also eCopy submitter tools and a validation module to help you create your eCopy and then check it for errors. 
However, they are fallible. I run a Mac. I rarely ever get them to, to work correctly. So you just have to know how to properly do a pre-sub in the first place in the event that the tools crap out on you. So know that there's a very specific PDF file naming convention that you cannot have any embedded attachments or attributes in the PDF. Obviously no password protected files and the PDF file size is limited to 50 megabytes or below. That can be a challenge with some graphical heavy files. This is my favorite, last but not least, it only works with Acrobat 11 or below, so you will likely have to downgrade your Acrobat to prepare an e-copy. You're going to put it on a flash drive. Another tip is that you need to either put some sort of sticker or like chain with like a identification number with your company name and some other identifying mechanism because I have had... I have sent a submission in. I didn't have the drives individually labeled. Somebody opened the FedEx box. They went flying and I get a letter, RTA. You didn't actually send us a submission. And I like sent them a picture because as a joke, I had taken a picture of the UPS guy dropping them in the package. And I said, no, I did see. And, and he's, they're like, we just request that you resend your whole submission. And they like, there was no acknowledgement of our bad. We dropped them and didn't know where they went. So, and it's still old school. You got a UPS, FedEx, post office. It's only electronic to a point. On your marks, uh, the FDA is going to receive your e-copy. It's going to take them usually 15 days to get through their refuse to accept checklist. That's why it's hopeful if you've pre-filled it out. By day 30 or 40, if you have requested a meeting, they should have reached out to you to confirm a schedule. By day 70, you're going to get the abbreviated feedback that they're going to give you if you've requested a meeting or you're going to get your full written feedback. By day 75, you should be able to meet with the FDA. By day 90, you owe your meeting minutes to FDA to review. And by day 120, they're supposed to give you the revision to the meeting minutes and confirm their acceptance of the meeting minutes. In the event that you do a teleconference or in-person meeting, you need to prepare a slide deck. You need to decide ahead of time who is the dedicated person taking the meeting minutes because that is critical. They do not need to be doing any of the talking or other involvement. Who is going to be the presenter? You should really try to keep it to one person that's doing the bulk of the talking and other people on your team with very designated expertise speak on their particular topics, but not just random. A lot of people are chiming in. Be ready to listen and compromise with the FDA and you need to value their time. You only have 60 minutes on the dot unless you have been pre-requested and granted an extension in the scope of your pre-sub when you told them that you wanted a, a meeting. So for the meeting minutes, these should be a summary, not a transcript of the meeting. Uh, they should be provided to the FDA within 15 days of the meeting. No recordings are allowed. 
You need to submit your minutes as an amendment to your pre-sub to the appropriate center. And if the slides were prevent, presented, you need to uh, include the actual version used in the meeting. And then that you're encouraged to submit an identical version of the meeting minutes in the format that facilitates editing. So like a Microsoft Word, so that the FDA can use track changes to, um, to give you their feedback. So keep calm, remember, don't repeat yourself in your pre-submission content in the meeting. The FDA and their entire expert team has read your pre-submission ad nauseum. So don't show up at the meeting and tell them things that are already in your pre-submission. Tell them things that are in context of the feedback that they gave you that help clarify or further draw out what, the, what they meant. Don't waste your time. It is limited. They will not go over. Don't expect the FDA to consult or tell you what they want you to do. Don't introduce new topics beyond those that were already asked and answered in your feedback. And then don't let your inventor talk too much. Because again, uh, oftentimes these are going to be the ones that are most in love with the science and the technology and are not going to listen objectively to the FDA and do active listening and active talking. Don't under communicate, not submitting a pre-sub when you should have, when there are important questions to resolve. Don't over communicate. I've also seen companies that submit three unusual, unusable pre-subs because they didn't ask the right questions in the right way or that they covered their ears and they didn't listen to what FDA had to say in the pre-sub because they didn't like what they heard and they thought, well, Surely they didn't mean that or they misunderstood and didn't get clarification that that was the case. Don't peek at your competitors, assuming that your competitors have correctly done their due diligence. And then I did see this one time. Somebody knew the vice president of the so-and-so and secretary of the state and to make a call to the FDA and tell them, no, you have to clear this product and guess the F, what the FDA says. Thank you very much. We don't report to you. So let's look at regulatory as a competitive advantage. If you're pitching to an investor, this is all you need, right? You need a great pitch. Your financial projections need to be on point. Your device concept makes sense and you're confident in your own regulatory strategy. Well, that's wrong on, on a number of levels. First off, I say this ad nauseum, you can't be in love with your own science. Not only does the FDA not apply the transitive property of math, um, but you know, as inventors and CEOs, it's, it's easy to think your, your technology is gonna sell itself and not surround yourself with the right, both technical and professional team, especially people with medical device experience. It's important to know anytime you're using the words novel, first of its kind and new technology, as a rule, those things do not mean 510K is your pathway because 510K is for sub substantial equivalence and de novo is for of new and novel. This is a real tightrope for startups because you have to convince the USPTO that you are novel and you deserve your patent but then you want to turn around and make the opposite argument to the FDA that we're really not that novel because we're just like this other guy over here, except for these few things. 
So it's a real tightrope that you have to walk, especially if you're trying to walk that tightrope and figure out when's the right time to put in your regulatory and quality management system. So in regards to a quality management system, I, I also see it's too little and too late. People have an idea, they do their market validation, their first prototypes, and it goes on into the product life cycle. Problem is, this is where a lot of people call me, is right before, they call me when they think that they're ready to write an FDA submission. And the, the reason why they do that is that as startups and small companies with small funding, they think this sounds expensive to, to get a regulatory person involved early. But the problem is, is if you don't call me at the right time to get the regulatory strategy validated before you prototype, well, then your test strategy hasn't been appropriately informed of what the regulatory agencies are going to want to see. You likely have not designed in the right specifications. You're not applying design controls at the right time. You don't know when to put in your full QMS or the scope of it. And you may make claims after you get your clearance that really you should go to the FDA again with. So the problem is, is if you don't call me at that right time, you have to get in your, your time machine and you have to build all that stuff retrospectively. And this really is expensive. Reverse engineering costs a lot more money than building it in the right stages at the right time as you go. So regulatory questions for founders. These are things that you guys need to be prepared Anytime that you're pitching to angel venture incubators, pitch competitions, you need to be prepared to answer when is your planned exit before or after your regulatory clearance or approval? What is your regulatory path? 510K versus de novo. What are your predicate examples? Why do you think that that's appropriate path? And the question, the answer should be because we met with the agency on such and such date and they confirmed our strategy. Who, who's your regulatory consultant? Why did you choose them? Or why did you think you didn't need a consultant? Who on your team has regulatory expertise if you don't have a, a consultant? And why do you believe that that person's depth of expertise is appropriate for what you are trying to accomplish? And then this last one's a warning, first geographies. If you tell an investor these days, we're going to the EU first because it's easier, 1990 called and even 2000 called and wants this regulatory strategy back because um, as of May of last year, the ease of entry to the US just got a lot less burdensome and the requirements for clinical evidence in the EU shot up dramatically. So no, no startup or new technology is gonna get into EU market reasonably likely within the next two to three, maybe four years is my prediction. So more regulatory questions. Does your product make a claim? What evidence do you have or will you have to support that claim? Is your product prescribed or what's your OTC play? What's your market? How's your, how are you going to access it? A warning flag is a consumer play and a healthcare play. This is one such company, Owlet, that raise money uh, saying, oh yeah, we have a consumer play. It's just a, a general wellness device for, 
for people to monitor their baby's biometrics. And they crossed the line in what they were collecting and how they were using it and then selling it to hospitals, amongst other things. And they get this nice warning letter from the FDA to cease and desist. So I'm sure that was a fun conversation with their investors. So classic winning strategies. Are you going to ask for forgiveness? So people who says, I'm just going to go into a 510k without pre-submission. That's, that's like you're going to ask for forgiveness and try to work it out in your additional information request versus asking for permission. And then lastly, you get to choose how your relationship with FDA is going to be, if it's going to be a marriage made in hell or a marriage made in heaven. If you treat them like a necessary evil, that will be reflected in the ease of your review versus if you treat them like a strategic partner. Because in the U.S., the FDA is the only agency you can get married to to bring your, your product commercialization. So you need to make the most of that relationship. 